Hi, I'm Jeremiah Johnston. Here's the podcast for The Jeremiah Johnston Show. And don't forget, you can also listen live across the Faith Radio Network Saturdays at 11 a.m. Central or 12 Eastern for the entire hour. And if you want your question read on the live show, go ahead and send it to me at www.askjjj.com. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome to The Jeremiah Johnston Show. Combining cutting-edge biblical scholarship with meaningful, thought-provoking discussions and practical answers to your questions. It's time to own your faith and be a Christian thinker with our host, author, Bible scholar, apologist, and president of the Christian Thinker Society, Dr. Jeremiah Johnston. And welcome to the program, friends. This is Jeremiah Johnston. I'm delighted to have you joining us today. And if this is your first time on this program, joining us across the Faith Radio Network, welcome aboard. This is a program that takes your questions seriously. We look into views uh, that compete with the Christian faith seriously, and we formulate a biblical answer right out of a biblical worldview. I'm so delighted by the ways in which this program is ministering to people far and wide, and most importantly, helping you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. One of the great benefits of this program, I think for many people, based on what I'm hearing, is the opportunity to introduce you to what the kingdom of God is doing all around the world. And friends, as you know, if you have followed my background, Audrey and I, back when we only had one child, Lily Faith, we lived in the United Kingdom. We lived in Oxford, Summertown for a bit, and then Oxford. Oxford City Center for longer, and for the better part of two years, it was our opportunity to live and breathe and work and minister and serve in the United Kingdom. And I have a passion for what God is doing in the United Kingdom. I'm not a doomsdayer. I'm not a boogeyman Christian. I don't think there's always needs to be a boogeyman around the corner. I think that uh, it's exciting what God is doing, and I'm an optimist. Uh, and so I have a friend who's getting ready to join us all the way from Scotland by the name of Dr. Andy Bannister. And he worked with Ravi Zacharias Ministries for years. He's a learned man, uh, but he's very witty. He's even kind of a, he's really very much a comedian when he speaks, uh, but he's an apologist. He's a very clear Christian thinker, and God's power is on him. He is the director of the Solas Center of Public Christianity. He's an adjunct speaker continuing to this day through for Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. Uh, whether it's on uh, TV, radio, and business forums, universities, churches, Andy regularly speaks to people of all faith and cultures about the uniquenesses of faith and Christianity. Uh, and as I mentioned, he has a Ph.D. and he studied Islamic studies. Uh, he's also taught extensively across the Canadian provinces where he was the director for Ravi Zacharias Canada Ministry. So he's written some excellent books. I want to talk to him about what's happening in the U.K. I want to ask him out of the laboratory of his own life, how we can be effective at clearly communicating the faith in a coherent way, in an intelligent way, and then how we can engage with other worldviews and other religions. So I have lots to talk to Andy Bannister about. Friends, I want to remind you, if you have any questions for me, you can submit those at askjjj.com. We get to your questions throughout the course of the program. Thank you so much for joining us today. And I also want to thank you for all of the great reviews of this broadcast uh, that you've been submitting on the different podcast formats. We're actually getting ready to extend this to additional formats. Uh, we're going to put it on everything you can put a podcast on. So thanks so much for your feedback. Thank you for joining us today on the Jeremiah Johnson program. I'm going to be back in, after this first break with Andy Bannister all the way from Scotland. You're not going to want to miss a second of our conversation as we dig deep together. Stay with us.
Friends, welcome to the Jeremiah Johnston Show, welcoming everyone listening across Faith Radio Network and our podcast. Again, as I mentioned in the previous segment, I'm delighted to have Dr. Andy Bannister joining us from Scotland. Dr. Bannister, thank you for being on the program today. Oh, Jeremiah, it's great to be with you all the way from across the Atlantic. How is the weather there right now, by the way? It's summer. How's things looking out the window? Well, yeah, it's summer, but it's Scotland. So it's looking grey and dismal, and my kids are busy playing out in the garden wearing fleeces and thermal <laughs> jackets. So that's Scotland, eh? And I'm connecting to you from Houston, where the heat index is over 100. So it feels like we're on yeah, opposite I, I, sides of the world. I don't want to know that. I do not know that. <laughs> <laughs> Friends, uh, you've got to connect with Dr. Bannister on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Let me give you his handles right now. It is Andy. G. Bannister on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Andy G. Bannister. And as I mentioned, you're now the director of the Solas Center for Public Christianity. You're a public Christian, Andy. You do these phenomenal videos, these short answer videos on your YouTube channel. I really want to commend the job that you do in such a clear and concise way helping us think through the challenging and difficult questions of faith. And I want to begin first, though, with your faith journey, Andy, because we see you now in the great platform that God has given you, and you are very much a global thinker for the faith, on the front lines, defending the faith, doing it in marvelous ways. I mean, and and what I love about you, you do it in so many different veins. You might be speaking about Islam. You might be doing an event with your atheist friend at a university campus. But where did it all begin for you? Give us a little bit of your faith journey Mm. for those that may not be aware of your personal walk with Christ or your testimony. Mm. Happy to, uh, Jeremiah. So I was uh, born into a Christian home, lovely kind of Christian parents, raised raised, uh, in a Baptist church uh, in London, in uh, in England. And of of course, you don't have to be a Baptist to go to heaven, but why take chances? That was always (laughs) a kind of motto. And... um, but very seriously, I think, like for many Christians, uh, I was great until about my teens. And then in my teens, I really began having to sort of think about to myself, you know, does this really make sense? Is it, is it true? And if so, what am I going to do about it personally? And so in my mid-teens, I remember sort of going forward and giving my life to Christ at a, at a youth rally. So that was kind of the first time that I really, it became my faith and not just my parents' faith. Mm-hmm. But then really for the next few years, I didn't really think that deeply about my faith. Uh, you know, I, I don't think I sort of was raised in, in a tradition where one did. I went to church on Sunday, certainly believed the gospel were true. But then in the 1990s, I was persuaded to go along to a place in London called Speaker's Corner by one of my friends. And Speaker's Corner is part of one of our big parks in in London, where every Sunday afternoon you can stand on a ladder or a box and you can talk about anything, and you'll get a crowd, sport, religion, politics. And my friend had figured out that Muslims were using Speaker's Corner as a platform to preach Islam, and he was going along and preaching to them. And so I remember saying to him, well, there's no point in me going to Speaker's Corner. I've I've never preached on the street before. He went, oh, it's easy. And I said, well, I've never talked to Muslims before. Oh, they're easy. Well, both those statements, Jeremiah, were wrong. Um, the current speaker's corner that day, he got on a ladder, and it turned out all the Muslims there were well-practiced in taking Christians to pieces. And they threw objections, they threw problems, they threw questions. I remember getting down from the ladder thinking, I guess I need to become a Muslim, because they have everything, and I have literally nothing. I couldn't defend anything, I believe. I went home, sort of, uh, you know, really wrestling with this and struggling with this. And the following day, I went to the local Christian bookstore and sort of, sort of shared my, sort of, my, sort of, my issues and what had happened. And the guy behind the counter said, oh, you want apologetics. And I said, what's that? I thought it sounded like a breakfast cereal. <laughs> and he directed me to sort of, um, you know, 
<laughs> there actually is a sort of dark, spider-infested corner of the bookstore where probably no one had been 20 years. And I sort of came out from the, came out from the sort of uh, that part of the bookstore, clutching, you know, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, Josh McDowell's Evidence of the Demands of Verdicts, and Norman Geisler's book, uh, Answering Islam. And I went and read those. That was where it all started. And then I read and I read and I read, got answers to all of the questions, went back to Speaker's Corner two weeks later, and they had new questions. And they made me look stupid all over again. <laughs> next few months, we'd repeat this exercise. Look stupid in public on the weekends. Read during the week. God used that. God used that crucible to give me a love of publicly defending my faith, really engaging head-on with our critics and those who think differently, and then reading and learning and studying. And that journey that began in Speaker's Corner led eventually, actually, to PhD in Quranic studies, and now sort of doing this publicly. Um, but it all began on a, on a wet afternoon at Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park in London, uh, back there in 1997. And friends across Faith Radio Network and the Jeremiah Johnston Show, uh, the, the monograph, the academic monograph that Dr. Bannister just mentioned is called An Oral Formulaic Study of the Quran, which is a groundbreaking and innovative study that reveals many of the ways that the Quran was first composed. So I hope we have time to get to that. So then you go from those very embryonic beginnings, which, I mean, talk about being baptized by fire, then you elect to go into do a PhD, then how did you ultimately get on with your wider apologetics ministry? And let me ask it a different way. Why didn't you just stay in the ivory tower, Andy? Well, I think from the word go, Jeremiah, the ivory tower was never going to appear. Like, I remember when I was doing my undergraduate work in, in theology, you know, always, I think, almost sort of irritating my professors by constantly asking, you know, how does this apply and, and what difference mm. does this make? Because in a sense, I, I would be studying during the week and then going out and doing evangelism at Speaker's Corner on the weekend. So I always was someone who grounded their study. And that happened too when I went into, into doctoral work. I really went into doctoral work to pursue an answer to a question that had come up at Speaker's Corner. I'm more about the origins of the Quran, and I was so fascinated I wanted to dig deeply into it. So that kind of kept me, kept me kind of grounded. But where this blossomed into, into public ministry was, um, was about two years into my PhD. I had a phone call a friend of mine who is also a mutual friend of Ravi Zacharias is a name probably known to, to many listeners uh, to Ravi Zacharias and Ravi uh, and RZAM uh, or RZIM for Americans yeah. um, had, had, were developing a vision back there in the early 2000s to raise up a, a whole um, network of Christians with PhDs in Islam and the goal was to get 100 uh, Christian men and women but who studied Islam to, to PhD level be a resource for the church, a resource for missions, and so on. And so my friend said to me, you know, would you like to be part of that network? And uh, he claimed there was a $20,000 scholarship involved. Uh, always dangle scholarships in front of poor PhD students. Yeah. I was off by a factor of several zeros, um, <laughs> but it was enough to get me to go, oh, tell me more. And so that really drew me through that whole network uh, into the orbit of, uh, of RZIM, and I began doing a bit of speaking for that ministry, both in the U.S., but also in, in Europe. And then in 2007, 2008, I was in a meeting, RZIM meeting in Oxford, where one of the international team was talking about RZIM's work around the world, and they mentioned the Canada office. And that was like a sort of bit of a laser beam through my brain at that point, it felt like the Lord doing, because when I'd met my wife uh, years before, the first thing she told me when we started dating is she felt the Lord had called her to Canada. Wow. Uh, I was the most parochial rich you could hope to meet. And I knew it, I, you know, <laughs> terrified of flying, choose to travel anywhere. And so when I heard that in Oxford, I think I really felt the Lord saying, you, you need to listen to this, my friend. And, uh, and so, yeah, we, we began exploring that connection. And to cut a long story short, it led to RZIM dispatching me to Toronto to be their Canadian director. 
and I did that for six years. Loved it, absolutely loved it. Then we came back to the UK, particularly because we had kids at that point, and we felt we needed to be nearer to grandparents, and really now carrying that on, uh, both through what I do at Solas, and also I'm still an adjunct speaker for RZIM, so I do a lot for them, especially around, uh, around Islam. And I love it. It's, uh, I'm grateful to God every day for this job because, you know, I love evangelism and engaging with people who think differently and sharing, you know, why I think Jesus is the best news there is. But I also like the world of ideas and, uh, and making sure as Christians we're doing this with rigor, really, you know, uh, responding seriously to serious questions. Uh, and so it's a real privilege to be able to do that and also to help equip Christians to do that. And it's amazing when you think about beginning at Speaker's Corner and where, am I right, you can talk about anything but the Queen? Is that accurate? <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I've never tried to talk about the Queen, but you, you know, but um, you, you probably can. I, I personally think Americans should talk about the Queen more. I mean, we'd love yeah. to welcome you back into the, uh, the Commonwealth. <laughs> the door is always open. And then, I mean, you really, in many ways, the Holy Spirit used you and Astrid to uh, revitalize the Canadian RZIM office. That's where I first uh, came in contact with you when I was on faculty at Acadia University. I mean, you were speaking in all of the provinces, and then now in Scotland. And how has? Here's my question. Then, you have been on the front lines, Andy, speaking in in places that are very post-Christian. Um, how has that informed your personal faith and also made you more effective with your skills of not just speaking in an echo chamber? You, in other words, forgive me, you didn't go the chicken route. You know, so many go the route of confessional schools. They never hear any arguments um, against their faith. It's just a, an echo chamber of agreement. How has this trek much more difficult, but is that why you're, you've been able to be so effective in these, in these godless environments? That's a good question, Jeremiah, and I think the answer is, is, is yes. You know, one of my favorite books that, that Ravi has written, the many he's written, is The Grand Weaver. You know, it talks about this metaphor of kind of, you know, God weaving all the different threads of our lives together. And sometimes from the back of the tapestry, you can't sort of see what's being woven, but then you turn it over and you see what the picture is. And I think looking back, you know, I, when I went into Speaker's Corner, I had no idea how God would use it. When I went into theological education, I had no idea how God would use it. It always feels like we just sort of, you know, sort of blunder our way forward. But looking back, God has just built this amazing thing out of it. So I think, yes, I think certainly studying the Islam to the depth that I've done has been really, really helpful. Uh, because just to learn to take another tradition seriously is also helpful. You know, I often say to students when I'm, when I'm teaching Christians, that you know, a really helpful exercise is when you're talking to someone from a different faith or of no faith, is to you know ask lots of questions and then see whether you can either describe back to them or write down what you think they believe, and then say to them, you know, have I summarised correctly? Have I basically mm. described mm. your worldview in a way that you would recognise? And if we can't do that as Christians, we have a problem because then we're just parodying people. And studying the Quran and doing Islam, Islamic studies for seven years really forced me to to do that. Um, and then in terms of the post-secular stuff, yeah, I think it is helpful, um, firstly because it helps you take other views seriously, and just like I have with Islam, I've tried to do the same with atheism, with humanism, even though I disagree profoundly, not to misrepresent, not to caricature, but to actually say, okay, what is actually being claimed here, and then let's respond. But also the other thing that I found helpful, Jeremiah, is that having studied Islam, as my PhD, it opens amazing doors because I think people are used to Christians, you know, having confessional qualifications. But I've, I found myself getting into all kinds of places, especially places at like universities, who, when you're chatting away and people find out that you're a committed Christian, but your PhD is in something unusual, that's a conversation starter. 
And most recently, it was, it was fun. A few months ago, I had the privilege of going and speaking to the, the Islamic Society at Edinburgh University. Mm. Um, the Costa and Mutual friend, one of their leadership team, had heard about me. And I got this email saying, look, we wanted, we're doing this sort of interfaith week. We want a Muslim society to, to hear from different perspectives. And, you know, we've never come across a Christian who's actually studied the Quran. Would you come and wow. speak to us on the differences between, on the differences between Christianity and Islam? I was like, yes, I would love to. I just, I think I said I just would have to, you know, obviously just be aware I might say a couple of things that you might find challenging, but I promise I'll be respectful. They were, no, no, that's absolutely yeah. fine. We wouldn't expect you not to. So I, we went along and I, and I did that, and I particularly landed in my PhD and some of the conclusions about the Quran. And my word, we then had a lively Q&A. We had 90 minutes of a... It was a very friendly Q&A, but it was a, a rigorous one. Wow. Um, but that door would not have opened had the Lord not led me into the, into the line of study that he has. So it's fascinating. It is. I'm friends, we've got to jump to a 90-second break. We're discussing faith and the intersection of culture, what it means to have an informed, conversant faith with Dr. Andy Bannister. He's the director of the Solas Center for Public Christianity. He's joining us all the way from Scotland for the hour. When we come back in 90 seconds, we're going to continue this discussion. He's just laid down some fantastic wisdom about taking you seriously, walking through doors that open, but being prepared. Stay with us. This is the Jeremiah Johnston Show. We're hearing from Andy Bannister. Welcome back to the program. We're joined, of course, by Andy Bannister, and I want to encourage you to connect with him on social media, Andy G. Bannister, and also their YouTube channel at the Solas Center for Public Christianity. Andy, um, I first became acquainted with your ministry watching you on television in Canada when we lived in Halifax, producing all kinds of different shows, and I think you did something called Big Questions, which was so powerful, where you very succinctly answered serious questions about the faith. So I'm sure you can find that on YouTube as well. Uh, but we've just, I, we've just jumped in midstream to a conversation we were discussing about you speaking at this Interfaith Week hosted by the Islamic Studies Center at the University of Edinburgh. They invited you. What an experience. Can you just give us a little bit more about the fact that you were able to go? And I want to summarize what you said before our previous break. You take the views seriously of those who have questions or even contend with the Christian faith, but you were able to articulate in a way that you didn't back down, you didn't compromise, but you did it in a winsome way. What are some of these tools for those Christian leaders who are listening to us right now that they can emulate in their own ministries that you do on a, I mean, on a daily basis now without even yeah. thinking about it? Gosh, there was about 10 questions in one yeah. there, Jeremiah. So, so to set the scene for the Islamic piece, I mean, it was a, a, a wonderful example of God's providence. I, it was a Canadian friend, uh, friends over visiting us in Scotland. They took themselves off to, off to Edinburgh for the day, did a walking tour, and the university student doing the walking tour was a Muslim. So my friend got chatting, uh, found out she was Muslim, found out she was involved with leading the Islamic Society, and then he happened to say, he just said, oh, my old um, friend, my old uh, you know, boss from Canada now lives you know, an hour from here. And he proceeded to tell her about me. And she's like, wow, can I take Andy's contact details because of this event the Islamic Society putting together? And then three months went by. We heard nothing, so assumed it had gone dead. And an email out of the blue going, hey, could you come and speak? Yeah. And um, what I actually did, Jeremiah, was I took the topic I took, was I did a talk called Mutual Misconceptions Between Muslims and Christians. That's and right. I started with three common misconceptions Christians have. This idea, you know, that many Christians assume that all Muslims are violent, which is not true. Yeah. Uh, many Christians misunderstand how politics and is, it works in Islam, because for Muslims, politics and religion are one category, not two categories. And I said many Christians misunderstand Muhammad, 
Uh, on the one hand, we sometimes think Muslims worship him. On the other hand, we also fail to appreciate how seriously they and how and a high view they do have of him, which is why they get so upset around things like the cartoons and all this other stuff. Then I switched over to the other side and said, now, Muslims misunderstand Christians as well. First misunderstanding is, is conversion. Many, for many Muslims, your faith is what you're born into. For Christians, it's a personal commitment to follow Christ. So that gave me an opportunity to share how that worked. I said many Muslims misunderstand the Bible. They think it's been corrupted, uh, but that's wrong. And I yep. shared why we believe the Bible hasn't been. And then many Muslims, thirdly, I said, misunderstand Jesus. They think that it's Christians who have taken Jesus, who was a man, and turned him into a god. Whereas actually Christians believe what we believe about Jesus because of the words that he himself uh, used. So it's a beautiful example to talk about what it means to be a Christian, why we can trust the scriptures, and why we believe Jesus is who he is. And then to say, then we got to Q&A, and all bets were off. Um, <laughs> but the Q&A was beautiful, too, because one of my highlights of the evening was one of the last questions was on the Trinity, which is a question Muslims often ask, and I unpacked a few thoughts. And at the end, the, the head of the Islamic society came up to me, and he said, he said, you know, the first time I've ever heard a Christian articulate really good reasons you believe, especially wow. around the Trinity. So it, it, for the first time, I, I can see why Christians would, would believe it. It sort of makes sense. So I cheekily said, well, so do you believe it? He went, well, no, <laughs> but, um, but I can see why you would. He said, it's not, he said, it's, it's not incoherent. And yes. if you know anything about Islam, that's quite a step for it someone is. to say, okay, that's quite a... The other thing I think you ask for Christian leaders listening to is how can we have these, you know, how can we engage people in, in open kind of ways? I, mean, I think a few sort of things I've learned over the years, Jeremiah, briefly. One is, I think I shared before the break, you know, really start by listening. Um, ask the other person lots of questions about what they believe, or if they don't believe anything, what they don't believe. Find out their worldview. Find out what makes them tick, what gets them out of bed in the morning. And ask enough questions that you can articulate it back to them. And even say to them, look, can I, you know, can I just say back to you what I think I've yeah. understood about what you believe? And if I've got it wrong, could you please correct me? Because I want to make sure that I, I, you know, I properly understand what, what you believe. I'm not, not engaged in a caricature. And people love that, that you're taking them seriously enough to listen. The first thing. Secondly, um, ask, learn to ask good questions more broadly. You know, when people have objections to our faith, so often we launch straight into, you know, downloading the latest, you know, book we've just read onto them. But ask questions. Jesus did this all the time. You know, so if someone says, you know, science has disproven God, well, don't just give them a, you know, 60-minute lecture based on what you've just read from Lennox or something. You know, <laughs> say to them, that's a really interesting assertion. Just out of interest, help me understand. What do you mean by that? In what way is science disproving God? Because not merely will you get more of a sense of where they're coming from, you'll also gain thinking time, but I think you'll also uh, very often find out the question they're asking is not really the question. Um, and it's, there's something deeper going on. And if you leap straight in and answer the surface piece, you often miss something much deeper. Mm. Um, and then thirdly, I think, you know, huge important for us as, as Christians, make sure in all of our conversations with our friends who are Christians that the goal is to lead them to Jesus. That sounds obvious, but we can very quickly, if we're not careful, become obsessed with winning the argument. Uh, we can become obsessed with a, perhaps a political position that's become associated for us with Christianity. And Christianity and politics sometimes gets confused. And, uh, and even our own denomination and our own sort of pet theological projects sort of come in there. Rather than, look, our goal is to help people see Jesus more clearly. I think that's what apologetics is about. And then trust that Jesus can take it from there. Uh, so keep it focused on Christ. Not on, not on the argument, makes a huge difference in the conversation. If you're just joining us across Faith Radio Network, we're discussing faith and the intersection of thought, 
clear thinking, good, coherent reasons for the faith with Andy Bannister. He's the director of the Solas Center for Public Christianity. He's joining us all the way from Scotland uh, via this wonderful phone line. Um, Andy, we live in a day and age where most Christians can passionately, effectively defend their coffee choice better than their faith. So how, how do we get there? For the Christians that are listening, we have so many new believers. We tend to defend what we're most passionate about. Jude 3 tells us to contend for the faith. For the Christians who are listening to you right now, Dr. Bannister, how do they get to that point? They hear your testimony that, you know, you literally started at Speaker's Corner standing on the ladder. They don't even know how to defend their faith to their neighbor. What are some immediate next steps for them? What can they take away? Well, I think the first thing I would say is just to begin where you ended it, Jeremiah, that, okay, in the case of myself, it was Speaker's Corner. But that's just because that was the opportunity the Lord put in front of me. So I think that one of the things you can be doing is praying, you know, Lord, show me what are the opportunities that are right in front of me. Maybe it's a colleague at work. Maybe it's someone to play sport with. Maybe it's a member of my family. Um, you know, what, are the, what are the circles of influence I have where there are non-Christians? that can be a natural mission field for, for me. And, you know, if there's a speaker's corner in your town and the Lord puts that on your heart, fantastic, go for it. But if equally, you know, you feel the Holy Spirit sort of lay on you, you know, you're the only Christian in your workplace. So there's a mission field. So that's the first thing. I think identify where the Lord have you serve. Secondly, I think make sure you know your own faith really, really well. And for, you know, if you're a younger kind of Christian or even an older Christian who hasn't done this systematically, I think just take a bit of time to read, you know, read two or three books, you know, dig a little bit deeply, you know, read the scriptures properly. Just make sure you can explain to somebody who says, you know, what is the Christian faith? And why is Jesus so important? And why do you believe what you believe? So you can answer. And actually, good Christians can help here. If you've got good Christian colleagues, friends, people you hang out with, do this as an exercise together. You know, challenge one another to say, you know, I'm going to tell you what I think a Christian is, and then I want you to tell me, did you think that was persuasive? Mm. And then once you're sort of sure in what you believe, then I think you can start moving out and engaging those who think differently. And the best way to do that is before you leap into feeling you've got to listen to thousands of hours of podcasts or, you know, read every book that Tim Keller has produced or goodness knows whatever, <laughs> is, um, is simply to, once you, because you've already identified in the earlier step I gave, the non-Christians that you think the Lord is having you engage with, start by finding out what they believe, what makes them tick, what are the issues mm-hmm. for them. And then you can target your preparation. And First Peter 3.15 says, always be prepared to give a, a reason for the hope that you have. Part of that preparation, I think, is listening to those around you who are not Christians. And if you're, you know, if you're in a workplace full of Muslims, then maybe you need to follow the path that I did and read some books on Islam. On the other hand, if it turns out that most of your colleagues are, you know, they're atheists or skeptics or, you know, whatever it is they're into, then you can begin, okay, how can I get a bit more equipped in order to dig more deeply into being able to answer their questions. And the great thing is we live in this wonderful age of great apologetics resources. Yeah. Um, I mean, listeners who are listening to this, if they check into your own show, I mean, anyone who's followed your work, Jeremiah, you cover all of these issues and this kind of stuff. Um, there's great resources online. And then I, I sort of jokingly said, sort of t- said Tim Keller. But, you know, Tim Keller's book, Reason for God, is a great place to start. Yeah. Um, if you're dealing with secular colleagues, it's really easy to read. It goes really deep. And it would be a good launching point into, into other resources. And friends, again, I want to—if if you're just loving the wisdom that Andy is just very, with a very free hand, dropping all over this program, uh, please connect with his ministry. Please connect with his YouTube channel. Uh, just check him out online. So many resources. It's a blessing uh, how he continues to equip the church. 
Andy, I have certain experiences when I have the opportunity to speak and minister that I never forget. And sometimes they're good, sometimes they're not so good. I had a great experience serving on a panel with you a couple of years ago where you made a statement. You you probably don't even remember you made this statement, but it made an impact on me just sitting on the panel with you. Because I've read Blaise Pascal many times, and his thoughts, I should say I've read many of his thoughts, his pensée in French, uh, but you said that we often jump to want to just show that Christianity is true, but we don't do what Pascal said, make what men wish it were true. You only had a second, and I've, I've often wanted to hear you continue that line of thought because it really was a blessing to me because I was writing my book, Unimaginable at the time, what the world would be like without Christianity, what would happen if Christianity collapsed, and, and what happens when Christians come together, the difference that we can make together. And your thought there really stimulated something in me because I was just finishing part three of my book, which is all about the profound difference Christianity can make. But do we ever step back and say we, we need to present it in a way men wish it were true? Can you just pick up that line of thought? Yeah, so that's a line, that's a paraphrase of, obviously, of, of Blaise Pascal, who's, you know, presents the gospel in such a way that good men wish that it were true and then show that it is. And just to flesh out that idea, I think sometimes, particularly for those of us who love the life of the mind and apologetics, we leap so quickly into, here are some arguments. You know, here's the cosmological argument, here's you know, the argument from this, the argument from the other. And our friend isn't interested. They don't, they don't care. You know, if someone knocks on your door and says, hey, I've got this amazing new vacuum cleaner. Let me give you 20 arguments why it's the best vacuum cleaner ever made. You're going to say, I'm not particularly interested, really, unless they can first convince you that you desperately need this because your house is a state and, you know, you'd be a sucker not to buy it. Bad pun mm-hmm. on vacuum cleaners. There we are. Um, <laughs> now, when it comes to – thank you. Uh, when it comes to the gospel, I think we've, we've missed a trick in that I think actually there's something about how do we help people see the difference – that Jesus makes, not just in terms of our own personal relationship with God, but much bigger than this. And the person who really joined the dots for me on this was a Canadian philosopher called Charles Taylor. And Charles wrote a very big, fat, scary-looking book called A Secular Age. You know, it's a massive book, hard to read. Others have written interpretations of it that make it a bit easier. But his big insight in that book was, you know, he said, we live in an age where people no longer assume there's a, there's, a, there's a God or a spiritual realm out there. It's almost like they, they live under a sort of, sort of iron ceiling and nothing can come through from, from outside. He said, but despite that, despite the fact that people have sort of lived in this world where they don't believe there's anything out there, where feelings are the most important thing, so despite that, the culture that we live in is haunted by the ghosts of transcendence. Mm. In other words, the, the sort of shades of things that, that actually point outside themselves to something much bigger. And he talks about things like beauty, meaning, significance, truth, justice, a whole range of things. And the interesting thing is, I mean, take that last one, justice, for example. All of my secular friends, all my humanist friends, they believe in justice. They believe in human rights. They believe people have value and dignity and significance and worth. But those things only make sense if God exists, because otherwise we are just collections of atoms and particles. And so I found over the years, what you can do is taking that theme, for example, is show them, look, if Christianity is true, all those things that you care about, you know, you're absolutely right, there is justice. You're right that humans have value and significance. That's why human rights really matters. But that all depends on Christianity being true. And therefore, if it is, all these things would follow. And you could do the same for other things like, you know, meaning and purpose and identity and so on and so forth. And there's a whole argument that can be done there in terms of constructing this longing in the person you're talking to to want to know if Christianity is true. Tim Keller does this beautifully, actually, in Making Sense of God, 
one of his more recent books where he does exactly this, this, this approach. And for people who think God is meaningless, God's pointless, there's not, not even interest in God question, I think you can show them, no, actually, so much stands or falls on whether Christianity is true. So now, why don't we take a look and see if it is. Mm, friends, this is so great. We've got to jump to a break. We're listening to Dr. Andy Bannister. When we come back, I'm going to be asking Dr. Bannister what his unanswered question is for God. Stay with us. This is the Jeremiah Johnston Show on Faith Radio Network. Friends, welcome back to the program. And gosh, this program is going way too fast, this conversation with Andy Bannister. Andy, um, talk to us for a minute. I just absolutely loved your book, The Atheist Who Didn't Exist, or The Dreadful Consequences of Really Bad Arguments. <laughs> and uh, you, you wrote this book with, I just felt like we were having a conversation in a coffee shop in every chapter because it was just your personality shining through the very witty way you present the gospel. It's full of humor, but also also just biting immediate surgical strikes, if you will, <laughs> for good reasons why we should believe in God and the Christian faith. Talk to us about your excellent book. And friends, I want to encourage you to buy it, add it to your library, buy it for your pastor, the atheist who didn't exist. What's the big idea of the book from your perspective as the author? So the big idea of the book, Jeremiah, was can we combine evangelism and apologetics and comedy and humor? I wanted to write a response to some of the atheist arguments that are very popular out there in culture, but write a response that atheists would read. Because my conclusion was, look, lots of fine Christian apologetics books have been written responding to atheism, but let's be honest, many of them are boring, many of them only, apply, only appeal to Christians, you are not going to get your, your, your next door neighbor who's an atheist to read them. And as I was thinking about how I could do that and how I could respond to the likes of Richard Dawkins, I came across this little quote by C.S. Lewis. He was asked why he wrote fiction, why he wrote the Narnia books and the Cosmic Trilogy and, and, and so forth. And he said, well, look, he said, the front door of people's minds are often guarded by watchful dragons that won't allow arguments through. And so he said, I wondered whether, you know, I could use narrative and story to sort of kind of creep past those watchful dragons mm. and sort of bring truth in the side door. And I read that and thought, you know what? I can't write fiction, but I've been told I'm quite funny, so I wonder if we can tickle the dragon under the nose, and while it's rolling on the floor laughing, we can take the truth through the front door anyway. Wow. Um, and that was sort of the approach, and I've been hugely encouraged by the number of atheists who've ended up with copies of that book. Lots of Christians have bought it, but then up their atheist friends, and sort of given it to them with a the pitch of, look, you may not agree with everything that, that Andy writes, but you'll enjoy the book. I promise you, you will laugh, you'll find it funny. And it's opened lots of doors. I've had lots of people email me saying things like, you know, my, I haven't been able to have a conversation about faith with my atheist sister for, you know, 20 years, but your book opened the door, and we're now having those conversations. So that was the goal, to kind of actually really write a book that could be read by atheists, that you could give to an atheist friend with no fear of a, of a, of a cringe factor. What's the best story that's come out of the book since its release for you personally that's been most gratifying as the author? Well, to unpack that, that one I just hinted at there, I, I bumped into a gentleman at a conference in Canada 18 months or so ago, two years ago, who came up to me and wanted to thank me for the book. And he said, he said let me tell you my, my story. He said, I was on holiday in France you know, a few months ago. We had a sort of big family holiday, family reunion, all the different branches of the family. And he said, I, t I took your, your book on holiday, Andy. And he said, on that family holiday, this villa they were staying at in France, he said, it was my sister. And he said, my sister hasn't been a, abandoned her faith you know 20 25 years ago really hostile atheist very pro, sort of progressive you know extreme left-wing uh, position on on everything mad advocate for social justice and all those kind of things are also a marxist and in a same-sex relationship and the kind of list goes on 
And he said, basically, I thought that ship had sailed in terms of conversations about the gospel. Well, he said, I was reading your book, and I, he, at one point, he said, my sister said, oh, what are you reading? And he said, oh, you know, briefly describe what it was. And she sort of picked it up with a sort of smirk, had a look, and went, oh, that's actually quite funny. Read the first couple <laughs> yeah. of pages, and he said, she was chuckling by the end of page two, and she said, oh, can I keep this? And he went, yeah, wow. sure. Read it in 48 hours, said she could hold on to it to lend to a couple of friends. And he said to me, this is what he said, he said, that may not sound significant, but for 25 years I have not wow. been able to mention the word God without getting the door slammed. I now have a foot in the door, thanks to that book. He said, thank you so much. Wow. And I just, that made my day, because that's the kind of person the book was written for, the kind of person who you almost think unreachable. See, humor is a, is, a, is a powerful tool. If you can make people laugh, make people smile, build rapport, then I find some of people are willing to, to engage a little bit more. Well, and Andy, you do this so well. Thank you for doing it for the church. You do what Paul said. You add cosmetics to the gospel. You make the gospel attractive, as Pascal said. What a powerful story. Uh, We only have a few minutes left, so I want to keep transitioning through things I wanted to just pick your brain on. So early on in my ministry, I did an event, Andy, with the Canadian Don Richardson. And for the benefit of our wider listening audience, Don Richardson just died in December of 2018, a tremendous foreign missionary He wrote this powerful book called Peace Child, which every Christian should have on their shelf. So we're doing this event. I think it was about missions, Andy, okay? And we get to the Q&A part. He has said nothing about Islam for 48 minutes in this presentation. We get to the end, and for three or four minutes, he speaks so clearly. And this was pre-9-11. And he said, the biggest question for the church is Islam, what the church is going to do about Islam he said it has grand designs, it has the money to carry out its designs. He claimed that Europe would be majority Muslim by the 2020s. He quoted a statistic, again, this was pre-9-11. And that really, for the first time, opened my eyes to the growth of Islam. And so, as a Christian, Andy, as somebody who, you, you've studied the rational text base for their faith, the Quran, and really the Islamic trilogy, what do we need to know as Christians? I mean, do you agree with Don Richardson that, in his opinion, this was the most important question for the church? Do you agree with that? And then what are some of the ways that we can reach out beyond what you've already said? What are things we need to know about Islam? Gosh, in just a few minutes. So yeah. let me begin by saying I think Don's right. I'm not completely sure he's right about Europe. I think things are more complex there. But certainly in terms of the big challenge for the church, yes. And I think we have dropped the ball for a number of reasons. One, I think we've been, those of us who are in evangelism and apologetics, we've been distracted by atheism. And it's still the case now, actually. If you go to, you know, many apologetics courses in, you know, fine colleges and universities around the world, often, you know, there might be a couple of lectures or sort of module on Islam, but the majority is really assuming that it's atheism we're dealing with. And so I think we've been blindsided. I think also there's a degree to which, sometimes I think fear of the other has meant we've actually not wanted to go there. And so we've huddled in our little Christian communities and not talked to outsiders, and so not realized as a challenge here uh, is the other thing. And so I think in terms of um, getting equipped, I think the first thing we can do as Christians is actually get to know some Muslims. So if you are listening to this show and you've got Muslim yep. you know, colleagues at work or you meet Muslims at the school gate when you drop your kids off, you know, why not start by reaching out? I was talking to a friend recently who invited a colleague, Muslim colleague, back for dinner. And my friend and his wife and the Muslim and his wife were chatting. And the Muslim said something to my friend that really shocked him. He said, I've lived in this country for 15 years, I think it's 15 years. And he said, this is the first time I've been inside a Christian house. 
Wow. And my friend sort of was talking about reflecting on this afterwards, saying how guilty he felt because he'd known this guy for six years before he invited him to dinner. But mm. also, how sad that in that time, no Christian had come across that man's path and befriended him. Because he's actually quite open uh, to talk about Christianity. He's not a hostile Muslim, but he just didn't know anything about it. And so I think first thing to do is reach out. And then as we begin doing that, I think that will naturally lead into how we prepare. Because different Muslim communities are different, you know, I don't want to sort of just say, well, you read this book or think about this argument. I think we need to start by building those bridges, starting to have conversations about what we believe. And as our Muslim friends naturally raise things, and then we look at responding. And then there are great resources around. I mean, for anyone listening to this in the U.S., I mean, I, I get religious people listening worldwide to you, Jeremiah, but particularly for American listeners, there's a wonderful event, RZIM, Rabbi Zacharias International Ministries, do every year called the Understanding and Answering Islam Summit. It happens in Atlanta. Mm. I'm one of the speaking team at it. You can find details on the RZIM website, rzim.org. And it's a great place to go. Uh, we, it's, a, it's a day and a half packed with really good teaching on Islam, what our Muslim friends believe, how to respond, all those kind of things. And it's a great place to meet other you know, Christians or other leaders who are trying to get serious about getting tooled up to respond. So the Understanding and Answering Islam Summit, RZIM, Atlanta, next January. Fabulous. We have we've covered the gamut so far in this broadcast, and I just hope that we can do this again. But I want to end with giving you plenty of time to answer this question, because any of my first-time guests on this program, I ask them, and I say this on every single broadcast, Andy, I think that transparency is the superpower to reach people when it comes to, yeah, we talk apologetics, Christian thinking, but I think vulnerability is a superpower to reach people. And it's been amazing, the answers. And by the way, I don't try to answer this question or, or give a PS, but for you, Andy Bannister, is there an unanswered question you have for God? If you could ask Jesus anything right now, what would it be? Or perhaps it's something that you struggled through and you transcended and you answered it, but you might bring encouragement to somebody listening. Would you share that with our audience? Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a good question. The context for answering it quickly, Jeremiah, I've always found it helpful to have two boxes in my head for questions that I absolutely have to answer, like ASAP or is game over uh, for my Christian faith, <laughs> and then questions that I really want an answer to, but it's not essential. And the great thing is in the first few years of really thinking this stuff through, that first box emptied, but there's still plenty of stuff in the second box. Just to pick one question out, I think, that I, I keep coming back to, is, is I think really it revolves around, the le well, not so much the legacy, the way the church doesn't often live up to the standards of Christ. You mm -hmm. know, that breaks my heart, and then when it breaks my heart, I realize that I'm probably implicated in it. For you and I who are Western Christians, I think, mm -hmm. you know, it's a challenging question about how much our Christianity and Western consumerism yes. are kind of bled into one another. We take so many things for granted that I think are not available to our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. And I think that's tainted the gospel witness. That's certainly has in the West. I think people look at Christians often in the West and go, oh, you know, different than we are. And so that challenges me because I think, gosh, if this gospel is really true, at times I wish I saw more of it in the life of the church and our impact in the nation. Rather than fighting culture wars, could we not be going out making the kind of difference that Jesus did? So I guess that would be my question for the Lord. I suspect the answer might revolve around exactly where I sort of said in the middle there. I'm caught up in it as well. So I suspect mm. the answer might be the Lord saying, I know. But of course, if I threw, if rejected every Christian who was imperfect, Andy, that would probably include you in the process. Wow. Um, but that still doesn't change the fact that I, I think there's a question there to, to answer. And I meet many non-Christians. I believe you're the same, Jeremiah, who when you dig, 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 it's bad experiences of Christians. Yes. And the church. That is actually the issue. It's not yeah. golden science. It's not whatever. So this is what we need to take seriously. 
Andy, can you give me give me 60 seconds on one other question I had to ask you in this first program? And thank you for that. I love your categories, by the way. That's excellent. Thank you for your answer. What do you think of this study? And I know it's not new. It's a couple years old now, but about the attrition rate of Christianity in the United Kingdom that one author in the UK got kind of cheeky and cute and said, well, by 2067, if the census numbers continue, there won't be any Christians left in Britain. I mean, is there hope for Britain? I mean, you have a ministry there in Scotland. So what are we to make of these numbers we hear in America? Well, I think there is some, there is some stuff going on, and there is too in the States, right? I mean, you guys yeah, exactly. are, are rapidly following down the, down the post-Christian corridor. I think from afar, when I was in Canada, looking back, I think I was a lot more depressed than I am being here now for two reasons. One is, uh, I think actually when you dig into the statistics, this idea of this golden era in the past is a myth. But then as I travel around, Jeremiah, what encourages me is I see green shoots everywhere. I speak in big churches and small churches. Wherever I go, there are people becoming Christians. There's God at work. Amen, brother. It's not dramatic, but there's stuff happening. And I was at an event last year, actually, when uh, after the, the speaker had spoken, it wasn't me, there was another speaker speaking on evangelism. A lady raised her hand, and this was the question, and I love the phraseology, and I'll end the answer with this. She said, she said to the speaker, how do we as Christians stop grumbling about how bad things are and get more on board with this quiet revival that is happening here in the UK? And I like that phrase. You know, it's not mad, crazy, you know, sort of stuff going on, but it does feel at times like a bit of a quiet revival. But God is at work, Aslan is on the move, and it's a privilege to be part of that. So for people listening, feeling a bit depressed, I always say, look around, prayerfully ask, what is the Lord doing in your neighborhood, and your community, and get involved with that. Perhaps don't worry about the, the big nationwide stuff, because you can't change that anyway. But you can change the impact of the church in your community. Andy Bannister, you're a blessing to the church. We love you. Astrid, your two children, we pray for you. We support you. We appreciate your ministry. We'll connect with you online. Thanks so much for joining us on the program today, and I hope you'll come back again in the future. Would love to. It's been a pleasure, Jeremiah. God bless you. Bless you, brother. We'll be back, friends, uh, taking your questions with the final segment on the show. Stay with us. Welcome back for our final segment. Wow, what a blessing to hear from Andy Bannister. And friends, if you want to stay up to date with Andy, again, I want to encourage you to connect with him on social media, Andy G. Bannister, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And then follow the SOLAS, that's S-O-L-A-S, Center, spelled in the British way, for public Christianity. And you can connect with the different videos that Andy is producing. I believe that he has a radio show of his own that's going to launch later on this year at a a later date. Um, So you're going to want to connect with this gentleman and definitely add his book uh, to your Christian library, The Atheist Who Didn't Exist or The Dreadful Consequences of Really Bad Arguments. I want to encourage you, friends, to continue to think deeply about your faith, to continue to investigate those deep questions. And um, friends, wow, we have we talk about so many fascinating things on this program. I want to encourage you to listen to it again, and that's why you need to know how to go to our website, the Jeremiah Johnston Show website at Faith Radio Network, where you can listen to all the past programs. You can see a summarized three to four hundred word blog that just simply summarizes the program. But these programs are so rich with content, you're going to want to listen to them more than one time. Take notes. Take these to your Bible studies. Do you know I have many people emailing me that they are actually listening to portions of this radio ministry in their Bible studies 
and then discussing them. Guess what? That's exactly what success looks like for me with this radio show. I'm delighted that people are using it, not just in their own individual walk with Christ, but that Bible studies are listening to this program and then engaging with their thoughts. And then I want you to carry the conversation forward. This isn't an end point. This is a beginning. This is a launch point, a pivot point for your Christian faith. And I want to continue to expose you to the fact that the scales of truth tip in our favor. Remember what Arthur Holmes said, all truth is God's truth. And since all truth is God's truth, there's not a single truth that you and I are going to to understand or learn about that we cannot also reconcile with our faith. Love God with your heart. Love God with your mind. Love God with your soul. That is the commandment. But take time as a Christian to do your part to investigate the Christian faith, to know and love Jesus in a deeper, more meaningful way for the purpose of not only your own close walk with Jesus Christ, but also for the purpose of engaging in a winsome, attractive way with the gospel. Let's end with that comment that we discussed earlier with Andy, Blaise Pascal. Our job is to present the truth in a way that good men wish it were true and then show them that it is. Do you have that ability? Pray that you increase your ability to show your friends, your neighbor, your loved ones, your family members, to present the gospel to them in a way where they wish it were true and then show them that it indeed is. Thanks very much for joining us. We'll see you next time on The Jeremiah Johnston Show. Hi, I'm Jeremiah Johnston. Thanks for listening to the podcast from The Jeremiah Johnston Show. I definitely want to hear from you, so if you have a follow-up question from today's program, you can submit it to me at www.askjjj.com. You'll also see how you can connect with us from there across social media. And don't forget, these conversations are available because of listener support. And you can make a gift right now to the Faith Radio Network at www.myfaithradio.com. And to avoid missing future editions of The Jeremiah Johnston Show, please subscribe to the podcast at iTunes. You can do a Google Play, RSS feed. And thanks for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the impact of the program.